Hi, my name is Mindy. The Old Testament reading is found in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of the old. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Caitlin, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 John 5, 1, 4 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Hannah. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John 16, 29 through 33. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. But Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing while we pray for a minute. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord, that we would hear Jesus. And Lord, open our hearts that we would love and serve and follow Jesus. In your name, to your glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in a series called One Last Thing, which as you've figured out by now is really several last things, Uh, and it's meant to walk us through this season of Lent, and Lent is really just this preparation toward Easter, preparation for Easter, and so we're walking with Jesus to the cross and all the way actually to the empty tomb, and um, we're, we're working through John's gospel, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, we'll be in John 16 this week, and John's gospel is unique in several ways. One of the reasons, one of the ways that it's different from the other gospels is how deeply personal John's gospel is. In fact, while so many of the other gospels have long sections of stories or parables or teachings, John has some of that too, but John has these long personal encounters with Jesus. And so you have in John 3, you have Jesus and Nicodemus. In John 4, you have Jesus and the woman at the well. And then uh, later in John 11, you have Jesus with Mary and Jesus with Martha. And then right before the cross, you have Jesus and Pilate. After the resurrection, you have Jesus and Mary. And then Jesus and Thomas and Jesus and Peter. There's these long one-on-ones. And so it's from John's gospel that we've been, we've been looking through these final conversations that Jesus has. These are his final conversations with his disciples, with his followers, and then finally in John 17 with 
his father. And so as we've been working through it, we've talked about in week one how our serving, how Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you by making yourself low. And then he goes on in John 14 and he says, look, don't, don't be troubled by what you see. Be- you believe in, in God. Believe also in me. I am the way. And we talked about how Jesus gives us a new perspective on our situations. And then John 15, his words, abide in me through the Holy Spirit whom the Father is sending to you. And then today, here we are in John 16, and he starts talking about how he's going to leave. He's been saying it, but he keeps saying it even more. He says, look, in a little while longer, I'm going to go away, and I won't be with you. But then in a little while, I'll be back. And they're saying, what do you mean by a little while? And how long is a little while? And Jesus, excuse me, but there's lots that is still left to do. In fact, in John 16, you kind of feel this sort of tension rising from his disciples. It's almost as if they're saying to Jesus, you keep saying you're going to go, but it doesn't seem like you're done. The world is kind of a mess. And so the question that maybe comes to the surface in John 16 is this, what will Jesus do about all that is wrong with the world? What will Jesus do about all that is wrong with the world? Now, when we phrase it that way, gee, that question's pretty relevant today. Here we are 2,000 years later. Jesus has already ascended to the throne, the right hand of the Father, and we're still, his followers still on earth, and we're saying, okay, Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, but what are you going to do about all that is wrong with the world? And maybe you watch the news or you read the newspaper or worse still, you read your Facebook news feed. And it just seems like there's all the stuff all around us and it says, oh, look, look how messed up the world is and look how messed up this is and that person and this situation and that country and this leader and this politician. Jesus, what will you do about all that is wrong with the world? The answer comes at the very end of this chapter, John 16, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. If you're the underlining or highlighting kind, circle that prepositional phrase, in me you will have peace. And then he says, in the world, circle that prepositional phrase, hold those things in your mind. In me you will have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. For Jesus' followers, they had a very particular expectation of their Messiah. If these followers of Jesus believed that he was the Messiah, then they sort of had a sort of a job description in mind. Jesus, we're so glad you filled this vacant position of Messiah. Have you seen the job description? Have you seen that what it requires here is that you're actually going to destroy and defeat the enemies of God? If we were to kind of boil it down, if we were to say, okay, what is the expectation of the Messiah? What did Jewish people hope for in their Messiah? If we were to kind of boil it down to two things and hopefully not be overly simplistic about it, we'd say, in essence, the Messiah was supposed to judge God's enemies and save God's people. Judge God's enemies and save God's people. Remember that Messiah is synonymous with the son of David, the one who would come as David came. And what did David do? Oh oh yeah, David was the anointed one who 
He represented Israel. He fought a great battle against a great enemy on behalf of Israel, right? He killed Goliath. Defeats God's enemies, saves God's people. This was the job description they had in mind. And so when Jesus says, hey, guys, I got to tell you, I'm about to leave. And they're saying, you've got a lot to do. Uh, Jesus, there's a lot of loose ends you haven't tied up. What do you mean you're going and so as we look through this, this one particular verse that is really the last phrase he says to his disciples before the cross, the way John tells the story, we want to take it a little bit at a time. What does John mean? What does Jesus mean by world? Now John, John's gospel uses this word cosmos for world. He uses it 78 times. Now that may not mean much to you, but in the whole New Testament, this Greek word cosmos shows up like 186 times. So John in his gospel alone is using up almost half of those uses. And then, if this is the same John, which by church tradition it is, that wrote one John, that letter uses the word cosmos another 20-something times. So John alone uses up more than half of the... In fact, if you just set aside Paul in 1 Corinthians because he says cosmos a lot too. If you just set aside that, John uses this word like almost ten times more than, than other writers do. I mean, it's, it's just so much, so much higher than these other New Testament writers. So John likes to talk about the world. So you say, okay, well, what does John mean by the world? Well, it's a bit of a picture that we're trying to sketch because sometimes he's drawing out different aspects of this word and other times he's focusing on other things. Think even in John's gospel how often the, the, some of our familiar verses in John's gospel. Right at the beginning he says, Jesus came into the world, right? But they knew him not. The light of the world, but they knew him not. Later Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. But then Jesus also talks about a ruler of this world. There's a prince who rules in this world and he's got to be cast out, cast down. In John 16, Jesus talks about that, this ruler of the world being cast down. And then, of course, there's that famous verse in John, for God so loved the world. So what is this? What are we to make of this? The world is this world of humanity beyond the physical universe, this world of humanity, a world that is dominated by darkness, a world in which there is a prince who rules, a world that the light of the world stepped into because God loves it, and yet he's rejected and opposed by this very world. If we were to try to sort of get a sentence out of this, it might be something like this. World is the individuals, societies, and systems that are organized apart from and against God. Now leave that up there and think about this for a moment. And you say, oh, so-and-so, they're so worldly. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, that's an individual who set their heart on the things of this world. And John unpacks that in his letter. The pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. But it's not just individuals, it's whole societies that whole societies can be organized apart from God and actually against God. But it's not just societies, it's also the very systems. Did you know there's such a thing as structural sin? Systemic sin? Systemic injustice? We've been having these conversations lately about that. 
about things that are just broken about the system, that have a way of oppressing and, and unfairly treating others. And it's, it's not just individuals. There's something about the very structure itself that is sinful. Have you had these conversations lately about race and justice? When you think about that, you think, yeah, there's something flawed, not just about individuals, but about the structure. In fact, systemic sin or systemic injustice is so difficult to actually pull ourselves out from. We're kind of implicated in it. Every time you make a purchase, it's like, I have no idea. I don't mean to contribute to this, but where's okay to buy clothes from who and from where? Because I I didn't mean to, but somehow am I sort of participating in this system that leads to oppression or injustice or exploitation? I mean, this whole thing is messed up. And maybe the picture of it in the Old Testament is that story of humankind coming together to build something. What do they build? A tower. The Tower of Babel. They say, let's get together. We'll, we'll build this thing. It'll ascend to the heavens and we will be known for it. Babel is the Bible's way of representing the world. Humankind organizing itself apart from and against God. That's why from Genesis, jump all the way with me to Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, the city that represents humankind's organized and systematic rebellion is the city of Babylon. Babel to Babylon. This is the picture of the world. Now, we move on and we say, well, what about trouble? In this world, you will have trouble. Actually, the word is tribulation. And I'm glad we we used a a version of the Bible that says tribulation because this is a Greek word that John doesn't use a whole lot. He only uses it twice in his gospel. And and if this is the John who has the revelation, as in the book of Revelation, he uses this word to talk about a great tribulation. So this isn't like, you know, you showed up at a hotel for vacation and there was no Wi-Fi. Oh, that in this world we will have trouble. (laughs) This is is not inconvenience. This is when the systems and societies that are opposed to God begin to oppose the people of God. This is tribulation, the oppression and opposition that comes from the societies and systems that oppose God. Now, Jesus and his disciples that were listening to him, Jesus knew that his disciples who were listening to him were actually about to experience this for real. This wasn't theoretical. If these words happened around A.D. 30, Jesus talking to his disciples, the destruction of Jerusalem happens in what year? The year A.D. 70. So these very men who are listening to Jesus are going to be running for their lives. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be tribulation, oppression from every side. This is a lot of the stuff that Jesus talks about in the Gospels when he says two people will be working in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left behind. He's not talking about a rapture. He's talking about a siege. And you kind of want to be the one who was left behind. Mm, That changes things. Jesus is saying, look, you're about to experience tribulation. But you know, all throughout history and all across the world, 
this has been the story of Christians. We see it now in the Middle East when Christians are being deliberately and systematically persecuted, killed. Do you know it's a good reminder for all of us here in the comfortable West to remember that no matter how kind and sweet and loving and gentle you are, no matter how much good you do for the poor and the weak and the marginalized, that the systems that oppose Jesus will also oppose you. We might as well kind of face that bad news right now. Jesus said it. They hated me. They are also going to hate you. The servant is not greater than the master. It's going to happen. And so this is maybe new for some of us. To say, wait a minute, you, you mean to actually follow Jesus means that the people and the societies and the systems that are organized in opposition to God are also going to oppose us? Yes. This is our lot. In the world there will be tribulation. What is Jesus going to do about it? Glenn, let's get back to that question you started with. What will Jesus do about all that is wrong with the world? Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, look, there's this trouble that you're going to have in the world, this deep trouble. But then he says, I'm going to deal with the world itself. If the world is kind of this cauldron, this boiling pot of all that is wrong with the world, and there's the tribulation and the opposition and the wickedness and evil and chaos, then the world, the way Jesus is using it, the way John is using it here, is kind of this boiling pot of evil, this cauldron of evil. <laughs> right? And Jesus doesn't address the individual bits of trouble. He actually addresses the very thing that houses it that fosters it. It's interesting, you know, when you think about what we might want Jesus to do about trouble, or tribulation. I think of that old song, Have I told you lately that I love you? Have I told you there's no one else above you? Fill my heart with gladness. Take away all my sadness. Ease my troubles. That's what you do. Yes, Lord! It's like our worship song. Come on, stand and sing it with me. Jesus, ease my troubles. That's what you do. That's kind of what we want, right? That's like our hymn of 21st century America. Jesus, you ease my troubles. Or maybe that other great hymn by Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> like a bridge over troubled waters, I will lay me down. Yes, Lord, you laid yourself down over troubled waters. Now we don't even have to go through it. You're our bridge, Jesus. You either make the troubles go away or you make us go over it. Hallelujah. Pass the bucket, would you? <laughs> That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, I've come to ease your troubles. He doesn't say, I've come to be a bridge over troubled waters. He says, I'm going to get to the heart of the problem. I'm going to deal with evil itself. I'm going to deal with the very structure and system of rebellion, the very thing that gives rise to all of it. I'm going to overcome. I have overcome the world. Now, the Bible's, one of the Bible's favorite images for this, the very seedbed of, of all that is wrong with the world, one of the Old Testament's favorite images of this is the seed. 
Now, the sea for you and me is like the place where we want to go vacation. Like, I love the sea. But Old Testament Israel was terrified of the sea. They were not seafaring people. All of their enemies always came in on ships. They hated the sea. Remember the story of when they're rescued from Egypt and they're fleeing and they're like, yeah, Moses, you're awesome. And all of a sudden, like, "Uh oh, the sea. I mean, they're so terrified of this that they're like, ah, Moses, we might as well go back to Egypt. What? Yep, generations of slavery. Let's just return. Why? That's awful. Oh, it's awful, but Moses, the, the sea. They're terrified of the sea. And then all of a sudden, Yahweh parts the sea, and they walk across on, on dry land. He makes a way where there was no way. And then the armies of Pharaoh follow them, and the sea collapses in over them. And they can't believe their eyes. They start singing, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. The sea, right, very early on in the story of Israel, the sea is the place where God's enemies go. You can go to the sea, buddy. Go to the sea. All right? And then Isaiah, in Isaiah 27, he has this picture of like a serpent, Leviathan, and a dragon. And he says they start coming up out of the sea. Monsters arising from the sea. John, in Revelation, sees the same thing. Beasts and monsters coming out of the sea. You're like, oh my gosh, what is this? Oh, so the sea is not just where God's enemies go. The sea is where evil and chaos reside. The sea is that place of evil and chaos and God's enemies, bad stuff. Then Micah 7, we heard it in our Old Testament reading this morning. One of the later prophets says, I'm going to deal with your sin. And I'm going to take it and I'm going to cast it into the depths of the sea. So the sea is where God's enemies go. The sea is where the very chaos of evil resides. And the sea is where our sin goes. This is the Old Testament picture of the sea. What does the Gospels show us about the sea? Well, I don't know. One of the stories about Jesus is his disciples are, are on a boat in the middle of the night. And all of a sudden, they look up and they see someone on the sea. And they're like, it's a ghost. That would have been their normal expectation of course we're going to see monsters out on the sea at night. Ah! And Jesus is like, hey, 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 it's, it is I. Oh. And Jesus is like, what, what are you guys up to? Just walking on the sea? So what, y'all scared of this? Just chilling, just walking on the sea, you know? Jesus, well, what are you doing walking on the sea? He's like, there's nothing to be afraid of here. I'm above it. Then there's that other story of where the disciples are in a boat and they're crossing and there's a storm that's raging. And there are a lot of scholars who say, you know, this story, in addition to being a, a true event, could also have been a, a story that really was a picture of the early church on this ship and turbulence and tribulation rising up from out of the world, out of the sea. And they're terrified and Jesus is taking a nap. And they're like, Master, we're going to die. It's the sea. And Jesus is like, would you guys knock it off? Peace be still. And the gospel writers say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this who is Lord over the seas? Who is this that that very seedbed, that very place of trouble and turmoil and evil 
It's nothing to him. He walks on it. He speaks to it. They listen to him. John, in his final revelation, chapter 21, it says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. Now, if you're a literalist, this is really bad news because you're like, doggone it, I was hoping the new creation would have beach time. But you're not locked into being literalist, especially not with uh, imagery that's so rich prophetically in Revelation. What might John have been seeing? He might have been seeing the ultimate completion of this. When Jesus says, look, that very thing, the heart of of evil itself is no more. There is no more sea. See, Jesus doesn't just deal with trouble. Jesus overcomes the power of evil. He doesn't just deal with the individual, oh, this trouble, this tribulation, this obstacle. Now he says, no, I'm going to go deeper. I am going to overcome the power of evil itself. Hallelujah. The picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation is a picture of the Lamb of God. Now, he's called the lion, but he looks like a lamb. He's got all the victory of a lion, but he has all the strategy of a lamb. And Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes on himself the force of evil, the full weight of it. He says, bring it, and by taking it all, he exhausts it of its power. He takes force of evil and breaks it by his death. Jesus, the Lamb of God. But you know what? We've got to zoom the picture in just a little bit closer. Because the problem isn't just some sort of vague evil out there. The problem's uncomfortably closer to home. Listen to the first part of John 16. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Wait, 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 wait. That description is not a description of what the Romans would do. What's that a description of? It's what the supposed people of God were going to do. Jesus is bringing the problem much closer to home. It's not as simple as saying, oh, all of the evil, all that's wrong with the world is out there. He's saying, actually, it's right here. (laughs) Wait a minute. Are you telling me that the people who need saving also need judging? Yes. And, And Jesus says, and the people who need judging also need saving. Remember, I told you to hold those things in your mind. Judge God's enemies, save God's people. Jesus says, yeah, it's actually more complicated than that. People who need saving also need judging. The people who need judging also need saving. James later would write, from whence comes all these strifes and wars? Do they not come from the passions that war within you? Don't look at the turmoil and say, oh, look at what a mess out there. Realize that that thing is right here. That actually the trouble and the turmoil, the sea is not something just there. 
The sea is in your heart. The evil is closer than you thought. And so to deal with evil in the world, Jesus must deal with the sin in our hearts. If we're going to say, Jesus, come on, do something about all that is wrong with the world, he'll say, yes, but it's not as clean cut as you think. It's not just all the stuff out there. It's also the stuff in here. To deal with evil in the world, Jesus must deal with sin in our hearts. How? The same way. The same way. The Lamb of God. See, Jesus is the one who on the cross is God saving his people and more. And on the cross he is the innocent one, the one who knew no sin, who became sin so that he could take God's judgment. See, in Jesus, judgment and salvation come together. In Jesus, God's judgment and God's salvation come together at the cross. Think about that, church. Jesus, the only one who could do it. And actually, we should have seen this coming. Because if you've been reading John's Gospel, John, like every good writer, introduces his main character in a very particular way. Do you remember who the first character in John's Gospel to speak about Jesus? It's John the Baptist. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, is not only the one who takes the full force of evil, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes the full punishment for our sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes the full punishment of our sin. Behold the Lamb of God. Well, if the problem was worse than we might think, the answer, of course, is better than we might have hoped. In 1 John 5, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. It's the same word. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 16. It's this Greek word, nikao, to vanquish, to conquer. It shares the same root as this other word, nike, which means victory. You know nike. We pronounce it Nike. Same word. Same word. I'm serious. And John says, look, his victory is your victory. His overcoming is your overcoming. How? What do we got to do? How do I do this, John? How do I overcome too? Give me the sword. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to work. I've got religious performance down. And John says, okay, let me, let, hang on. Take a step back. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Wait, you're saying believe? Right. Okay, but what else? How do I fight the cultural war? How do I take a stand against the world? No, you want to share in Jesus' victory over the world? Believe in Jesus. Oh, come on, John. There's got to be more. Put your whole faith in Jesus. Put your faith in him. Oh, wait, in, in him? What did Jesus say? In me, you will have peace. If we were to take John 16, and work our way through those three sentences backwards, it would sound like this. Take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. 
These things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. These things I've spoken to you that you might have peace. Church, this morning, the words of Jesus are meant to bring you peace once again. Take heart, the Lamb has overcome. Take heart, the Lamb of God has taken on Himself the full weight of evil, the power of evil, and the punishment for sin. Take heart, the Lamb of God has broken the power of evil and taken the punishment for your sin. Take heart, the Lamb has overcome. You want to share in this victory? Put your faith again in Christ. In me you will have peace. Would you bow your heads this morning? There is freedom every week to confess our sin together because we know the power of this sin has been broken. We're free to admit, Jesus, I am part of what is wrong with the world. I'm not all of what's wrong with the world, but I've contributed to it. That's what we do. Each week when we confess and we say we haven't loved you with our whole heart and we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves, what we're saying is, Jesus, I have contributed to what is wrong with the world. But you've broken that too. You've broken the power of evil and taken the punishment for sin. Oh, Lamb of God. Oh, Lamb of God.